Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I've asked you before and I want to ask you again, join the union.us. This is the single most effective way that you can help us ensure that every last pro-democracy voter gets to the polls this November. Join the union.us. Join more than 60,000 of your fellow Americans and more than 70 organizations from around the country dedicated to fighting for our democracy. Go to jointheunion.us and get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Susan Glasser and Peter Baker, co-authors of the New York Times bestseller, The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021, available wherever fine books are sold. This is the first definitive account of the full four-year Trump presidency, and I can promise you that when you read it, it will feel definitive. Peter is the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times, responsible for reporting on President Biden, which is the fifth president he's covered. He previously covered Presidents Donald Trump and Barack Obama for The Times, and Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush for The Washington Post. Susan Glasser is a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes a weekly column on life in Washington. Prior to The New Yorker, she was editor of Politico and founded the award-winning Politico magazine, served as the editor-in-chief of foreign policy, and wrote for a decade at The Washington Post, where she was the editor of Outlook and National News. Today, they're coming to us from their home in Washington, D.C. Yes, they are married. Peter and Susan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be with you, Reed. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. So this is going to sound like an odd question. How do you write a book about a guy whose literal every emotion was made public either by himself on his Twitter feed or to the press or by someone in his immediate vicinity leaking? How do you even decide to comprehend that kind of work when so much of it was in our faces for four years? Well, part of the challenge, I think, of writing about or seeking to understand the Trump presidency, in fact, is finding a path to navigate through that you know, flood of angst and emotion and all caps tweets that we all lived through, right? And I, I do think for Peter and I, this was about setting out on a mission to record for history, as well as for our own selves, how we ended up in this catastrophic ending in 2020. And I think the point is that this was a four-year assault on the institutions of American government and that you had to see the through lines. It wasn't some kind of like violent, crazy outlier. But in fact, there were a lot of warning signs all along the way. And part of it is getting out of Trump's head and his Twitter feed, looking at the people around him and trying to understand you know, what was the damage that they actually ended up inflicting on the American system of government. And Peter, you know, Susan mentioned the people that worked around Trump and the through line with them seems to have been, with the exception of the true believers, fanboys and fangirls, is that whatever remnant of the 
Washington Republican establishment that was willing to go work for him, these people knew at least some level of what they were getting into. And it seems like they all knew better than probably to go join this guy. They couldn't have been under many illusions that this was ever going to work out well for them. It's a mix, right? So there are people who took jobs that they would otherwise never get in some other presidency. And there are people who were just ambitious and there are people who were public service minded. And I think some mix of that, right? Nobody's a single motivation. But once they get there, what we discovered in the 300 interviews that we did for this book is very commonly experience this moral conundrum. Where is the line? Where are you willing to draw a line here? How long are you willing to work for this guy who many of them saw as reckless or erratic or dangerous and maybe even doing things that were unethical or illegal? And a lot of them convinced themselves, look, if I leave, the next guy is going to be a lot worse. And so it's good for me to stay. And sometimes that's self-justification. But you can also point to specific examples where that actually turned out to be true. And that's in our book again and again, where you see people who are tossed out and their replacements are more compliant or deferential to Trump. I worked for President George W. Bush. I was a Schedule C. I was lucky enough to work at the White House. But there was no shortage of people applying for jobs, whether or not they'd worked on the campaign or the RNC, or they were sort of the political bureaucracy, for lack of a better way to put it. They'd cycle out of a Republican administration and into Capitol Hill or a think tank or an association or something. And now that was their time to be, you know, two or three rungs higher on the ladder. But those people, for the most part, either they didn't want the jobs because they were afraid of what they were getting into, or they had definitely not wanted to work for this guy. They hadn't wanted to support him. They hadn't wanted him to be nominee. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, people tend to forget this, but back in 2016, of course, Donald Trump was initially favored by only a small but significant minority in the Republican Party and ran against 17 different Republican candidates in the primaries on Capitol Hill, it was almost uniformly against him. And even the members of the Freedom Caucus, who are now his staunchest allies and willing to go wherever he wants them to go, back in 2016, even they were very reluctant to support Donald Trump initially. So the talent pool was limited from the get-go. You know, then there's the bucket of the national security people the sort of nonpartisan infrastructure of government. And that is one of the reasons why Trump ended up initially with so many current and former military types. Army General H.R. McMaster, who was his second national security advisor, obviously not a Trumpist, but thought he was there to serve the country. You had Jim Mattis, the retired four-star Marine general, who was the first defense secretary, types like that. So, you know, that's one category of those who served Trump. And in some ways, they were overrepresented. But of course, the story of the Trump presidency that we write about in The Divider is the story of Trump becoming enraged, essentially, by those who sought to constrain him as he saw it from doing what he wanted. And over time, figuring out how to impose a personal loyalty test on a wider and wider swath of the government. You know, one of the fascinating stories, anecdotes, reports in your book is something that had been reported on previously, which was when Trump went to the Pentagon to sit in the tank, which is the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, highly secure bunker-like conference room. I've actually been there in 2001 when President Bush went to visit for the first time. I think he made his first, you know, in-town visit to the Pentagon. And whether or not it was Mattis, Dunford, and maybe Rex Tillerson, and they're like, okay, we're going to explain to him how the world works. And Bannon as we like to say, he's crazy and evil, but he's far from stupid, understands what this meeting's going to be and gets Trump just fired up to make sure that like Trump is in the most 
anti-institution, let's burn it down mood. He can be when he gets there. And this obviously was this where Tillerson says he's a fucking idiot, but give us a sense of, because, you know, you, you talk about the people, yeah, they're the people who were quote unquote establishment, but then you had people like Bannon, he's a Leninist, right? So take us through those kinds of interviews, <laughs> exactly. you know, as you're hearing these things, you know, where again, we remember the reporting, we remember what Tillerson said about him, but the news to me that Bannon had gone out of his way to ensure that Trump was as on edge about these guys constraining him being a supportive, you know, ally, everything else. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you're right. That famous meeting in the tank, you know, initial reports came out relatively real time that that was the scene of the fucking moron comment <laughs> that Rex Tillerson made. We did more reporting and confirmed that comment came at the very end as people were leaving the room when Gary Cohn, who was one of the organizers of the meeting, along with Jim Mattis uh, saw that Tillerson was fuming. He was really angry. Trump had cut him off a couple times in the meeting. And Gary Cohn turned to Tillerson and said, basically, are you OK? And in response, the secretary of state said, oh, you know, he's a fucking moron. And the room was not empty enough, as it turned out to be. But the point is, even though we had some initial fragmentary reports that I think underscored how disruptive and extraordinary meeting this was, there never really been a full account until I think our book has the fullest one. It shows that Trump, for example, even enraged the normally often reserved chairman of the Joint Chiefs at that time, Joe Dunford, who had made a habit of not clashing with Trump. And yet Trump so upset him by repeatedly attacking the general who was in charge of Afghanistan at that time, who wasn't there. And he also accused the generals of being fucking leakers. Dunford responded to him, we're not fucking leakers. And it was really interesting, though, because I have to tell you that when we asked a number of participants who sat in that meeting, well, was this the worst meeting? They, to a person, said, no, absolutely not, because there were so many worst meetings. <laughs> this was so consistent with who Trump was and how he behaved with him. And also, it wasn't just that Trump was, you know, kind of a bull in a china shop behaving badly. The thing that we learned that was the most alarming in doing this reporting was that we were actually much closer than people understood to Trump really succeeding in some of his very disruptive national security goals, like, for example, pulling out of NATO. That wasn't just a public talking point. He came much closer than expected, according to multiple senior officials that we interviewed, to actually pulling out of NATO. And, you know, just thinking about that, you guys wrote that it was not the worst meeting, but it was the first worst meeting, which I thought was a really clever, to be honest with you, way of, to describe it, which was they were all the worst meeting. They just kept happening. They were all the worst meeting. And then we just happened to hear that one. So we ask about that one. But the generals, you know, they all shake their heads, you know, like you guys have no idea in effect is what they're saying. So now you see this where he's in office, right? And he's meeting with these foreign leaders. He's going to the NATO summit. He goes to G7. You know, it's always fascinating to see, you know, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who, you know, basically took one look at the guy and said, I want nothing to do with this guy, <laughs> wouldn't come to Washington, wouldn't speak to him. You know, Macron knew how to push his buttons with the big military parade. Trudeau tried to like sort of give the sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And then even he couldn't do it. You know, the Mexican president who he's getting into an argument with, the Australian prime minister who, you know, basically tells Trump, you don't know what you're talking about. And the only people he's friendly to are the worst people on the planet, which is what we see even today 
I think the downstream effects of that are that Trump has done it, but now so many of his acolytes and mouthpieces, whether or not it's Tucker Carlson or Steve Bannon or whoever else, sort of followed on, whether that it was Putin, obviously, Erdogan, Bolsonaro in Brazil. And so, I mean, you all have both have deep experience in foreign policy. So this must have been as big a shock for all of them as it was for all of us who were, you know, sort of living it as Americans in real time. Going through these interviews that we did, it was just, I think for a lot of them, it was like therapy. I think for a lot of them, they were just sort of like trying to process it, just like Americans in general, and certainly reporters and political people have been trying to process it. And some of them obviously were talking to us because they were trying to reputation wash and they're trying to make sure history is written as favorable to them as they can and justify what they did and all that kind of thing. But the level of PTSD out of that White House and that administration is extraordinary. Yeah, well, I mean, to the point about the foreign leaders, I think they also had a certain amount of PTSD. You know, Merkel refused to come back to Washington because the meetings that she had had with Trump initially were so bad. You know, this is the chancellor of Germany, and she was left resorting to reading Playboy magazine from right. the late From 1980s. Like the 80s, right? it, exactly. it turns out Angela Merkel is the one who does read Playboy for the article. <laughs> right. The only one. Exactly. You know, but actually this interview that Trump gave in the end of the Cold War was, you know, almost like this Rosetta Stone to his worldview. And it's actually striking because while he's not obviously a big policy guy and has been very ideologically flexible, shall we say, pro-choice and anti-abortion and, you know, in favor of gun control and against it. But his worldview, to a certain extent, has been very consistent. And even the sucking up to autocrats was not something that he just started doing, you know, in the last few years with Vladimir Putin. He was very favorable toward the leaders of China after the Tiananmen Square massacre in that Playboy interview. He was a protectionist back then, Already, he was convinced that our allies were screwing the United States and ripping us off even then. And obviously, he carried through some of those positions all the way through. But Trump, he also sought to personalize and sort of tear down the institutional barriers across the board. So that applied to foreign policy and national security. It applied to the Justice Department. It applied to even the public health agencies in the midst of COVID. As far as foreign policy goes, he was so angry with Merkel for refusing to come to Washington in the middle of the COVID pandemic. She said, you know, President Trump, I have under quarantine my country. You know, I can't just violate the rules. He was so mad about that in June of 2020 that he actually ordered in a fit of pique, he ordered 10,000 U.S. troops out of Germany, basically on a whim. This was a major disruption. It was actually one of the first things that President Biden had to cancel because he was trying to move the headquarters of the European command to a totally different place, things like that. It was real kind of wannabe dictator stuff. Well, and he also, on a couple of occasions, threatened to pull American troops out of Syria, which was seen as a sop to Erdogan of Turkey, which was going to mean he was going to have free reign on the Kurds. So, And then, you know, obviously when he sent the Reaper drone after the Iranian general, right? Isn't it right that the drone strike on, was it Soleimani, was like on a list of options they thought he'd never go for because no normal person would go for it and he just sort of picked it out of a list? 
one thing they had discovered is to be careful what options you put in front of him, because if you put something there that any other president would say, of course, we're not doing that, he's going to pick it, right? I mean, the traditional Washington strategy is what they call a Goldilocks strategy. You present a president with three options, one that's like too crazy, minimal, and doesn't do anything, so they're not going to pick that. One that's too crazy, crazy, like they would never pick that. And then the middle option, which is what the advisors are really trying to aim for. Well, with Trump, what they learned is don't put the crazy option there because it's very likely he's going to pick it. I want to stick on Putin for a second. A few months ago, I had a guy named John Seifer on the podcast. He was deputy chief of station in Moscow for a couple of years. And I asked him, I said, do you think Putin really has anything on Trump? And, and John said, oh, well, I don't know, but Trump sure thinks he does. So it really doesn't matter. But there was one thing that you guys said when they started going through the, the Mueller report, and it was fascinating. I had not heard this before. It said, Quote, working with U.S. intelligence agencies, Rees investigators, one of Mueller's investigators, confirmed that Russian agents had mounted an elaborate shadow campaign to damage Hillary Clinton and elect Trump, concluding it was a revenge plot that Putin ordered up against the former secretary of state he blamed for encouraging street protests against him in 2011 and the Democratic administration he blamed for the sanctions imposed on Russia after the 2014 invasion of Ukraine. As someone who hadn't thought about it in that context, I just always assumed, well, if he could have Hillary Clinton or he could have Donald Trump and Donald Trump was a stooge, that that would be the way to go. But I didn't realize this went back, you know, five years into when she was secretary of state. Yeah. So there was motives on the other side. So remember, Putin had grown quite upset at the United States for years over these so-called color revolutions in Georgia and Ukraine. And he thought they were CIA plots to ring Russia with hostile pro-American regimes and that they were also maybe trial runs for what might happen in Russia. And so when 2011 comes along and there are tens of thousands of Russians in the streets who don't want him coming back to the presidency, not a result of the CIA, even though CIA, I'm sure, would have happily encouraged that. I mean, that's genuine Russian discontent, but he sees that as a plot. And because Hillary Clinton publicly said something encouraging to the people in the street, like, you know, go democracy or something to that effect, he then blames it entirely on her. And it becomes not just a line, I think, for his domestic consumption, where he's playing to nationalist sentiments, saying these people shouldn't be taken seriously because they're only American stooges. It becomes clearly, at least in the view of the American intelligence analyst, the motive for his later revenge plot in 2015 and 2016. Yeah, that's one thing that is very interesting, is that Putin was, in fact, ordering up and beginning to plan the interference in the U.S. presidential election, even sort of in parallel with the rise of Trump. So then, you know, along comes this like oddly pro-Putin <laughs> Republican nominee. Uh, no one expected that per se. Right. And so Putin was already planning an anti-Hillary campaign. And then they got the added benefit of the rise of Donald Trump. Right. And that's again, this if there's another theme that runs through your book is that just like he has for the better part of 50 years. Like he just ends up in the right place at the right time. You know, he's Teflon. Somebody asked me the other day about, you know, whether or not I thought the Letitia James lawsuit in New York <laughs> mattered. He's been sued like 4,000 times. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, call me when he gets convicted, right? Like, I don't know what to tell you. You know, I interviewed Alex Vindman, who obviously was at the center of so much of the, the perfect phone call. And this was one where the Ukraine situation was one where, and Trump also has this throughout his history, which is if he had just left well enough alone, he'd have been fine, but he couldn't. And I remember even in the probably spring of 2019, 
I was working for Howard Schultz at the time as he was considering running for president. And we're hearing, oh, you know, there's a lot of trouble for Biden in Ukraine. And we didn't really know anything, but I, you know, I'd heard that. Oh yeah. And you know, once it really blows up, the rest of the Democrats are going to go after him. But before the Democrats can do that, Rudy Giuliani goes to Ukraine and starts mucking around. And now when that gets out, rather than Democrats being able to say, you know, Joe Biden's got this Ukraine scandal brewing, they now have to circle the wagons around. So, you know, once again, if Trump had just told Rudy, like, have a martini, go back to your suite and leave us all alone, you know, maybe the Democrats take care of Joe Biden for him, but he just can't leave well enough alone. Well, that's right. There is always this element of hubris and overreach with Donald Trump. And of course, the thing about doing a chronology in our history is a narrative history, right? And when you see so clearly how he's also almost like rushed with adrenaline and jubilant at what he sees as gotten clear of the Mueller investigation that had overshadowed almost his entire presidency. And boom, it's exactly at that moment that he overreaches and begins this next imbroglio with Ukraine. And the thing is, is that, you know, they're not very disciplined, right? Their plots, as you put it, are often Donald Trump is talking about them in public. And Rudy Giuliani is going on TV and he's blabbing about Biden and Ukraine and he's on Fox. And then they enlist Don Jr. in the spring of 2019. That's when I got the first inkling that something really strange was going on with Ukraine. Uh, you know, a small community of Russia watchers, <laughs> you know, here in, in Washington, we saw that they were campaigning against the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and trying to get her fired. And it was, you know, what is up with that? What is Rudy Giuliani doing? What is Don Jr. doing? That was in the spring of 2019, just as the Mueller report was coming out. But it wasn't just a question of overreach here in some kind of normal kind of oppo research type situation. Donald Trump sought to personalize and politicize the machinery of the American government, right? It was the real story around Ukraine that's so, even now, today, to me, so stunning, is that he sought to use $400 million in U.S. military assistance to Ukraine as his personal, essentially, war chest. And he basically blackmailed Ukraine with taxpayer money approved by Congress that was supposed to go for the military defense of Ukraine against Russian aggression. And he used that to demand the investigation of Biden. That's not something about opposition research in a foreign country. That is blackmail using $400 million in U.S. funds. And that is really extraordinary by any standards. So this leads to his impeachment, which a lot of the back and forth between Pelosi and Nadler and Adam Schiff was new to me. Not surprising, I guess, as you read it, which, you know, there's no small amount of ambition. There's no small amount of which red lines are we going to cross. But I, I want to ask you, you know, and not to name names, although if you want to, I'm certainly happy to hear them, is did you talk to any of the Republican senators, with the exception of Mitt Romney, who, if you spoke to them in their conversations, ever indicated either verbally or just by their countenance? that like, what the hell did we do? Like we could have taken care of this, you know, in early 2020 and we didn't do it. You know, they have to live with their decisions. So they're not even an off the record eager to admit that. But I do think they recognize that, right? I mean, I think if you put them on truth serum, a lot of them would look back and say, where do we miss the opportunity to change course here? But they're really, look, you know how politics is, you know, better than we do. I mean, the number one goal for any office holder is to hold on to the office. And that's true across party lines. I interviewed a Republican senator once. It wasn't on the record. 
I said, well, you don't like Trump, right? No, I don't like Trump. And he thinks this guy thinks he's dangerous and bad for the party and all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, okay, so what's the deal? And he says, look, they just had a poll in my state. 88% of Republicans in my state support him. What do you want me to do? And that's true. What's remarkable about Trump, and again, you know politics better than we do, but in the old days, you would bring a presidential candidate to your district or state because you, the local guy, would give them credibility with the people that you know best. But what we found here is that Trump can go into anybody's state or district and trump them, to use the phrase, (laughs) uh, with their own constituents and turn their own constituents against them if they're not loyal to him. And so he has succeeded in continuing to control a party that his establishment doesn't want him but can't bring themselves to do anything about it. I have this rough math I do. My only data points are the Republican U.S. Senate primary in Pennsylvania this year where it's like you had 33% go for Dave McCormick. And there's a bunch of those who probably voted for him because his name wasn't Mehmet Oz. Then you had Mehmet Oz who got 33.1% because he was Trump's guy. But then you had Kathy Barnett, who got 27%, didn't run a campaign. And like those are the ultra MAGA. And as you described it, Peter, it seems like it's sort of A, the nationalization of all politics, but B, to your point, the sort of, you know, audience of one, which is what we call our campaign against Trump. When we go after him, we're only looking for one person, which is why we always know where to find him. But it's a really interesting dynamic. And you could even see the reverse of this with Joe Biden sitting in office now at, you know, 40 some percent. And there's not that many Democratic candidates who want him to come to their district. He hurts their credibility as opposed to Trump, which is like, if I'm not nice to the guy, God knows what will happen to him. And we've seen that. But I mean, you know, you use Lamar Alexander, former senator from Tennessee, as sort of the in particular example of this, where he ultimately voted against impeachment. I'm going to assume he knew better. But there were also, you know, the Portmans who's about to leave office, Pat Toomey's who's about to leave office, Roy Blunt's who are about to leave office. Like they can't believe this stuff. So they're either cynical, afraid, or fellow travelers, or maybe they're all three. Well, that's right. Some combination potentially of all of the above. But I think you're right to spotlight this because what is the big difference between sort of say Washington and Congress of the Watergate era versus of today? It is the Republican Party and Even more specifically, it is the members of Congress, the congressional wing of the Republican Party. You know, the founding fathers, they totally did anticipate and feared that there could be a president who aspired to be a dictator, that there could be a president who committed great wrongdoing. The Constitution was written before there were political parties. And the assumption was that institutional conflict, that checks and balances would kick in right? That Congress would have a mechanism in impeachment to assert its own interests if the executive became out of control. And in some ways, that's actually what happened back with Nixon and Watergate, with the Republican elders who ultimately went to the White House and said, this is it, you're done from Congress. But this time, institutional interest, institution of Congress has sort of withered. And I think that was one of the precursor events to the Trump crisis was the decline of Congress as an institution. And so the result is that partisan affiliation just absolutely overwhelms any sense of institutional pride or, you know, notion of protecting the legislative branch at the expense of the executive branch. It just doesn't happen. And the Republican Party is a wholly owned subsidiary that's been taken over by Donald Trump to the extent that in 2020, right, they didn't even pass a policy platform. They literally said, 
our policy is whatever Donald Trump wants it to be. That's never happened as far as anyone knows in the history of the Republican Party. Let's fast forward. So he is acquitted of his first impeachment. And as that's happening, COVID is making its way to America's shores. I thought one thing that you mentioned in the book that I thought was really important was the reference to Bob Woodward's interview with Trump that didn't come out until later in 2020 in his book about how dangerous COVID could be, about, you know, this could be a hundred times worse than the flu. What always sort of most shook me about that was the fact that like it was one of the few times when I could recall, even to this moment, when Trump actually had clarity that like you could tell he understood something was bad. And that was the aberration, right? The clarity was the aberration. And then he returned to form by saying, it's not a big deal. And then we see all of this stuff, right? Whether or not it's Burks, Fauci, you know, there's this chaos finally puts Pence in charge. Well, I can't fire him, but at least I can blame him. You know, we'll save the red states, let the blue states die. I mean, it was just sort of, if there could have been anyone sitting behind the Resolute desk at that moment, and any group of people around that person who could have been worse, I'm not sure who they'd have been. Well, look, you know, he had succeeded in politics to that date through tools and instruments that were completely irrelevant to a pandemic. He could not tweet it away. He could not intimidate it away. He could not bully it away. He could not rally it away. The pandemic didn't give a crap about his 140 characters. And therefore, at some point, Trump gave up and he stopped trying. And what he did instead was, coming back to the title of our book, he went to the politics of division, the politics of polarization, because then he found an enemy, which is what he always wants, which would be China, which is fair enough. You can criticize China, but it would be the blue states, as you put it. It would be the people who were advocating masks. It would be the doctors. It would be the scientists. It would be the people who say, let's have lockdowns more than maybe we need them or what have you. And it became for him a way of finding somebody to go against rather than a way of bringing the country together. And that's why we picked the title, because I just think that's so endemic to his presidency. His whole presidency was about the divisions in this country that existed before he got there. He didn't create them, but he was a manifestation of them and he exacerbated them and was an accelerant of them. And so this was a guy who, after all of the ridiculous press conferences and the light inside the body and drinking bleach and everything else and getting COVID himself and the outlandish behavior at the first debate and the last debate and everything else was come election day 2020, he loses by a lot in the electoral college and in the popular vote. But in the states that matter, the states that we were focused on, it was, a, as you call it, a pretty close run thing. Well, that's right. That is pretty extraordinary. When you consider the fact that Trump has assembled a record that is arguably, you know, one of the more not just divisive, but shocking of any modern president. And yet he has more or less held the Republican vote, right? There's not a dramatic change in what the Republican vote was from Mitt Romney or John McCain or George W. Bush, for that matter, right? He has more or less held the party. And the partisan affiliation clearly overcame whatever re reservations the kind of non-Trumpist part of the party had for him. It's remarkable. And it is one of the reasons why Trump, even now, two years after these catastrophic events, still supported by millions and millions of Republicans. But I think, again, you know, what our study in the book kind of brought us to was a renewed sense that Trump He's not like a strategist. He's not a you know genius analyzer of things, but he certainly, he had a clear sense almost that this support 
from the Republican Party faithful. It was almost like magic armor to him, right? And he would just blow past guardrails and then keep on going. And in many ways, that's the story of this catastrophic 2020 that we all live through. And you've just given me kind of trauma by recounting uh, (laughs) the bleach press conference and the hydroxychloroquine and everything. But the thing is, is that none of it should have surprised Americans based on who Trump has been his whole life, including before politics, including the magical thinking around medicine and promoting conspiracy theories and crazy ideas. He has long had a penchant for that, that predated his entrance to politics. And it just had deadly consequence when he became the most powerful man in the world. Same thing with the blowing past the guardrails in 2020. You know, he said from May of 2020 on, that was the first time he tweeted that the 2020 election would be, quote unquote, a rigged election. He made it as clear as possible for many months before the election that any outcome that did not have him as the winner, he simply wasn't going to accept it. And yet so many people, including passionate critics of Donald Trump, with whom I spoke, certainly in the days and weeks after the 2020 election, they couldn't really believe that he was going through with it. And I think that he sort of benefited from that again and again. But also, Susan, you know, those same United States senators that I referenced earlier, when like they didn't want to get on the wrong side of him or whatever, like they now know he's lost and that by hook or by crook, he's going to leave the Oval Office. But they still, you know, they take Josh Holmes, you know, Mitch McConnell's concierge. What's the worst that could happen if we humor him? And then McConnell won't say anything until December 14th when the electors actually meet and cast their ballots for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. But even then, it's like, oh, but we've got these two Senate seats. You know, McConnell, whatever you could say, okay, he and Trump hate each other, they don't speak, but like he's as complicit as anybody, right? Like he got what he wanted. And let me just say one more thing about McConnell famously votes against impeaching Trump the second time and then goes out and says Trump caused January 6th. Like if I hadn't grown up in Washington, D.C. and now been doing this for nearly three years, I'd be like, are you kidding me? But it's just, it still even boggles my mind. (laughs) It is mind boggling. The bottom line is that, you know, Mitch McConnell, I think, is a classic example of the fallacy of managing Trump until the point at which he becomes unmanageable and explodes your own goals. And, you know, Bill Barr, same thing. Absolutely. In the end, Barr does turn against Trump publicly. But, you know, after being one of his chief facilitators and enablers on December 1st, 2020, Bill Barr says to the press very clearly that there is no election fraud widespread and sufficient to justify investigating or overturning the election. Trump is furious with him. He subsequently leaves office early. He subsequently writes a memoir that denounces Trump. And yet they also perpetrate this fiction. And McConnell, too, in our book, we quote him as telling others that Trump basically was deranged, quote unquote, after the 2020 election, that he lost it, that he had went crazy. This is a very self-serving fiction, right? You know, that one of the things about the people who enable Trump is that they tend to date the moment of Trump's craziness from the moment they got off the train. Right. (laughs) And, you know, I do think that, you know, where was Bill Barr when Donald Trump was undermining the integrity of America's electoral system earlier in 2020? He was nowhere. Right. And McConnell made essentially this transactional deal with Donald Trump that, you know, lasted from the fall. We recount this. They were actually openly at odds with each other in the first year of Trump's presidency. And they basically kind of had a negotiated peace 
in the fall of 2017. And Trump essentially hands over, says, fine, I'll work with you to transform the judiciary. And McConnell takes that deal. And they basically, that piece holds more or less until the 2020 election. But again, McConnell, these guys are always trying to overthink it. Democrats did this too with Trump. They would try to game it out and think that they knew what would happen. And they often, their assumptions were wrong. So Barack Obama arguably made this wrong calculation in the fall of 2016. He didn't want to confront the Russians openly about the election interference because he thought that that could hurt Hillary Clinton, whom he expected to win. And you saw it, I think, with McConnell thinking, well, I need Trump for these Georgia Senate races. Instead, Trump lost the Georgia (laughs) Senate races or helped them to lose them. And it's really a good reminder to me, just, you know, as a person, as well as a journalist, like, just don't be too clever by half. Don't try to game it out. Just do the right thing. Right. Because he doesn't know what to do with that. So look, as we come to the close here, I want to look forward a little bit. Obviously, we've got about a month to Election Day 2022, where there will be, I think, 60 some percent of Americans will have, you know, at least one election denier on the ballot. Donald Trump has been out there, will be out there, right? He's out there doing rallies. Does Trump run again? <laughs> well, that's the billion dollar question, isn't it? Here's the thing. If he's not running, he's not going to let us know until the second he has to, because obviously he wants to keep the attention. He wants to keep the money. He wants to keep the power. So I, I've been somewhat dubious that he would run again. But look, you know, if you had to put money down, you have to say yes. I mean, he just for a lot of reasons. One is he's encouraged by all the polls. He's encouraged by the money. He's encouraged by the notion that maybe this would protect him from some of these legal problems that somehow that uh, prosecuting a, a presidential candidate might be too much of a step for Merrick Garland. And he, I think, you know, he sees Biden as weak and possible to take out. But, you know, I think the, the, the midterms are a big factor in this. If Oz goes down, if Walker goes down, if candidates who are so associated with Trump go down and the Republicans look around and realize that he has left them with a wreck instead of a takeover that they should have had historically, that may corrode his support. There's not going to be a moment, I think, where there's like a snap of a finger and the Republican Party says, we're done with you. We're not because if that would have happened, that would have happened after January 6th. Right. That's normal. You would have expected that it didn't happen. But it is possible there's a corrosion. I mean, the NBC had a poll. They asked Republicans, are you more of a supporter of Trump or more of a supporter of the Republican Party? And his latest number was 33 percent said they're more supporters of, of Trump. That's still a high number, and it would be enough to win a contested multiple candidate primary. But it is the lowest number since they started asking the question. And it's possible a fatigue factor sets in if the midterms don't go as well for Republicans as they think it ought to. And Susan, as we're looking into our very cloudy, foggy crystal balls here, (laughs) as you all, when you get up in the morning and you're drinking your coffee and you're listening to or seeing the latest craziness, and sometimes it's Trump and sometimes it's somebody else. Do you think that you, not only your fellow journalists, but that the other people in the elite political class, the national political class, do you think they've really understood what's happened? Are they willing to confront this? Because the one thing I've found is I've talked to a lot of people, you know, whether or not it's senior officials, donors, is that there's almost this very eerie 2016 like thinking. These people are crazy. They can't win. He can't run and win again. Do you still get that sense or do you think that the scales are falling from the eyes? (laughs) You know, I would sort of choose like, you know, like door number two. I mean, I don't think that people have forgotten how crazy and disrupted things were in Washington during the Trump presidency. However, there is this reversion to human nature to get used to anything, to believe that somehow 
well, I know these things that I think are kind of crazy and irreconcilable and impossible, and yet I just can't deal with them. So right now we have on the Democratic side, a president with terrible approval ratings, and he's going to be, you know, he's already the oldest president and he would be in his well into his 80s if he ran for a second term. Nobody wants him to run, but nobody can see what else is going to happen, right? So that's what you have on the Democratic side. Nobody can figure out what's really going to happen. And then you have Trump, who's given every indication he's going to run for office again. You know, there are catastrophic potential investigations. Once again, people are getting their hopes up that somehow there's going to be this kind of accountability moment for Donald Trump. So I feel like we're kind of hurtling down the road toward an outcome that you probably have a better sense than most people do, that it's, as Donald Trump said to us all in the 2020 election, in that debate, this is not going to end well. It's interesting you say that. I had George Conway on probably over the summer, and I asked him you know, if he thought Trump would run again. And he said, I think he will. I said, do you think he can win? He said, I don't know, but he will do enormous damage as he goes about it. And I think that's the thing obviously for me and, and for us, is our biggest concern is that we don't know what he'll do next. Nobody does. To your point, like trying to game out where he goes next is a fool's errand. That doesn't mean you don't stay in his face. We take great pride in making sure that whatever synapses fire in some direction, go in a different direction based on things that we put in front of him because we know how to reach him. And it's got to be disruptive like that because for all of his consistent inconsistency, it's on his terms, right? And as soon as it becomes on somebody else's terms, as your book also demonstrates, he can't handle it. And that's when his decision-making, such as it is, degrades even further. All right. Well, listen, I want to thank both of you for coming. Susan, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, yeah, please read my dispatches at The New Yorker each week and uh, on Twitter at SBG1. And I want to thank you for featuring us in the book because we felt that, you know, this is important for history and it might even be important as prologue too. Absolutely. And Peter, how about you? On Twitter at Peter Baker NYT. And if you do a search for Peter Baker and New York Times, you'll find the page with all of my latest articles. And at some point we're going to get a book website up, but we haven't got our act together yet. <laughs> but you can buy it anywhere. You can still buy it. That's right. You can still buy That's it. Right. That's right. The new book, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, The Divider, Trump and the White House 2017-2021. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen or on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Susan. Peter, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having us. Great to be with you. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, 
The Game We're In with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.